pain has reached epidemic proportions in America. I'm Dr. Paul Christo. This is Aches and Gains. Dr. Paul Christo is one of America's leading experts on relieving pain. He's board-certified, Harvard-trained, and a pain medicine specialist at Johns Hopkins. U.S. News & World Report ranks him as a top doctor and among the top 1% in the nation for pain management. Becker's Review selected him as one of the 70 best pain management physicians in America. He's listed as a super doctor for the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Northern Virginia area. Aches and Gains is a weekly talk show covering all aspects of pain and pain relief. The human impact is real. Older adults, children, and even infants struggle to cope with pain. But there's hope, and there are treatments that can ease pain and suffering. The show offers compelling stories about people who've found relief. We share cutting-edge treatments from contributing experts, and we offer ways to help people cope with their pain. Welcome to the show. The war on drugs, and more specifically, the war on opioids, began around 2010. This is the time that the Centers for Disease Control announced that there were over 16,000 deaths related to opioids. That's a big number, but not all of those deaths involved opioids alone. And most patients with chronic pain using opioids therapeutically do so responsibly. In fact, a recent study in the Journal of the American Medical Association showed that less than 13% of nearly 136,000 patients presenting to the emergency room for opioid overdoses carried a diagnosis of chronic pain. Unfortunately, the war on opioids is hurting patients who need them the most. Our first guest, Angelica, is an example of how the crackdown on opioids might have led to serious health consequences. She had a traumatic biking accident that knocked her unconscious, fractured ribs, and dislocated a shoulder. Surprisingly, she refused to go to the emergency room, fearing that she'd be labeled an addict, that her opioids would be taken away, and that her pain would be left out of control. Maya Solovitz, author and journalist, then joins us to sort through the facts about who's really becoming addicted to opioids— dying from overdoses, and suffering the most from the war on drugs. Aches and Gains is supported by Medtronic, Purdue Pharma, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Millennium Laboratories, The Pain Community, and Boston Scientific. For live online listening to Aches and Gains, please go to paulchristomd.com. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. Angelica is a 58-year-old woman with chronic pain from a condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, leading to substantial muscle and joint pain. She even had pain as a child and wasn't fully diagnosed until 2012. She's used opioids successfully for over 20 years to work, enjoy her marriage, and do those things in life that make it worth living. Angelica, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you. You've had pain since childhood, and it took some time before doctors came up with the diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Talk to us about that. Well, it finally turned out to be Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, Mm -hmm. a genetic flaw causing the production of defective collagen, which is, of course, what makes up our connective tissue. Mm -hmm. So these defective tissues, they can stretch or tear easily. Body parts just aren't held together properly, and the joints can shift or dislocate spontaneously, which, of course, causes chronic pain and all kinds of other strange health problems in the body. 
Absolutely. Now, collagen is an essential component of connective tissue, which is found in virtually every organ system. So tendons and ligaments are made of connective tissue. Uh, So are blood vessels, skin, and cartilage, for example. And if tendons and ligaments contain defective collagen, they may weaken, become unstable, and are definitely painful. Angelica, where did you start feeling pain when you were young? Well, it, I was lucky that it didn't really start causing me severe pain until I was in my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. But as a child, it was unusual pain from small impacts, like jumping down from a chair or a wall. Yeah. My feet would just, just, it was like knives stabbing into them. Or hitting a tetherball hard. My, my hand would just hurt like crazy. And it probably pushed my joints a little bit out of place, and then it would cause pinching. I ran into things a lot because I had problems with proprioception, knowing where my body is in space mm-hmm. because everything's loose. Right. So I was known as a clumsy child, always running into things. What did your parents think was going on at that time? They were tough people who had been raised during World War II in Europe. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really think much about pain. Right. And I had no idea it was abnormal. And nobody else complained about their pain, and I <laughs> thought they felt the same way. Uh-huh. So I just learned to be quiet about it. I have patients who dislocate their joints. I mean, they have joint hypermobility from Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or they sublux their joints, which is sort of a partial dislocation, and it's extremely painful. Do you experience that? Strangely enough, that is not what has happened. And I think it's because I've been super active all my life, Mm -hmm. and I've just learned to tighten my muscles around joints all the time. How about muscle spasms? Oh, yes. That's definitely part of it. Because mm-hmm. the joints, I guess, get out of alignment and they start pinching and then the muscles tighten up to hold it together yeah. and then it pulls it some more and more muscles tighten. Right. It can really cascade out of control. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Angelica, how did the pain affect your life as a kid? Just in the strange way of always feeling like I wanted to be this tough person, but everything was much more painful for yeah. me. Yeah. So it was a weird disconnect between thinking that I should be normal and but not really being normal at all. Mm-hmm. How did you control the pain when you got into your 20s and, and before it was diagnosed? Well, first it started in my mid-20s and it was just this low back pain from sitting too much in, um, at work. And I used a chiropractor and I did exercise. I did a lot of sit-ups, mm-hmm. which seemed to help it. So it, it only spread much later, well, about 10 years later, it started spreading, and that's when I finally saw a neurologist to try to pin it down, and we didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have tremendous back pain and sciatica and buttock pain on one side, and then the next morning I'd wake up and it would be on the other side. I thought I was going crazy. (laughs) Yes, I mean, I can understand that. You went to a neurologist who diagnosed piriformis syndrome, and that's a condition uh, whereby the piriformis muscle, which is located in the buttock, spasms, causing buttock pain, and it can also compress the sciatic nerve lying underneath it, leading to buttock pain and also pain down the back of the leg. At that point, you had surgery to remove part of the piriformis muscle to reduce your symptoms. Did it actually have that effect? helped only the strength. I would have been losing strength in that leg. Uh-huh. So I got that back, 
but the pain didn't go away. I know that you actually self-diagnosed yourself by extensive research on the internet. Then you were sent to a rheumatologist, and the rheumatologist sent you ultimately to the Stanford Genetics Clinic when, in 2012, you were formally diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Listen, we got to take a break. When we come back, we'll find out the details of how Angelica reduced her pain. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by Teva, the leading global pharmaceutical company committed to increasing access to high-quality health care by developing, producing, and marketing affordable generic medicines, as well as innovative and specialty pharmaceuticals. Millennium Health is a leading health solutions company that delivers accurate, timely, clinical actionable information to inform the right treatment decisions for each patient at the right time. Millennium offers a comprehensive suite of services to better tailor patient care. More information is available at www.millenniumhealth.com. Welcome back. Angelica, what did you find the most effective for reducing your pain and giving you a quality of life? My neurologist in 95, he gave me OxyContin Mm -hmm. and Norco. So I've been on OxyContin and Norco since then. Okay. Now, OxyContin uh, is extended release oxycodone, and Norco is a combination of acetaminophen, also known as Tylenol, as well as hydrocodone. Angelica, I have patients uh, who find muscle relaxants helpful for Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome muscle spasms. Ah, uh, yes. Do you? Yes, I did. And they work for the muscle spasms. Mm-hmm. But I can only take them at night because they all make me very tired. Yes, I mean, a lot of my patients uh, say the same thing. The muscle relaxants are sleep-producing and they've got to take them in the evening. I know, Angelica, that you tried pregabalin, also known as Lyrica, but it made you feel very drunk and you had to stop it. And you also tried physical therapy, but unfortunately that caused repetitive motion injuries. Also, psychology was unfortunately not very helpful for you. Let me focus now on the opioids. I have several patients who are on chronic opioid therapy for their pain, and they feel that uh, it has gotten them back to a productive life. It really seems like that was the case for you too. Absolutely. My dosage was reduced by about 75% once by this neurologist who thought I was just addicted. Mm -hmm. And all I could do was lay around on the couch. If I tried to do anything, it hurt too much. If I tried to go for a walk, I couldn't. It pinched in my hips way too much. And I got really depressed and just almost suicidal until I saw my addictions counselor who straightened it all out for me and encouraged me to find a different doctor, which I did. Mm -hmm. And she's working with me. We're just doing the best we can to keep this under control so I can function. Good for you. Since 1995, then, you've been using uh, OxyContin and then Norco to control your symptoms. What kind of a difference in your life has that made? Well, I was able to get up at 5.30 in the morning and go take the dog for a walk Mm -hmm. before going to work and spending the day mostly sitting down, being mentally challenged by my work, and doing a lot of keyboarding, which can be deadly. And still have enough energy afterwards to go out with friends. I just didn't stay at home a whole lot. Mm -hmm. I know that you were a a high-tech worker at uh, places like Yahoo, for example. You've mentioned before that you get about 75% relief from these medications. And given what you've been able to do on them, 
Is that enough? It's a terrible feeling to be trapped by your body and to be stuck in there when it's so broken. Yeah. And it screams at you every time you try to do something you love. Mm-hmm. I can't even hug my husband for more than a few seconds at a time well. because the imbalance and the position is such that it'll start hurting after a few seconds. Yeah. And that might be one of the things I miss the most. That's, that's really hard on us. That's got to be hard. Angelica... Since the war on drugs by the Centers for Disease Control and the DEA, that is, you know, the crackdown on the supply of opioids, have you encountered any problems getting OxyContin or Norco from your doctor or pharmacy? I'm not having problems with the doctor at all, just with the pharmacy, and only because they run out sometimes about halfway through the month. Their quotas have been cut. They ask for a certain amount that they know they need, and they only get some portion of that, not the whole amount anymore. Wow, I mean, that's really changed over the years. And I want to thank you, Angelica, for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be able to get the word out. Please join us for part two, when we find out why Angelica refused medical treatment after a serious bike injury that fractured her collarbone, injured three ribs, dislocated her shoulder, and rendered her unconscious. Don't go away. Maya Solovitz joins us next. She's an author and journalist who's written about this war on drugs and how it's hurting pain patients. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. Aches and Gains is supported by The Pain Community, a web-based nonprofit created by people living with pain. Check out paincommunity.org for information, references, advocacy tools, and a premium section to securely interact with other members in forums and chat rooms. Boston Scientific a leader in microelectric implantable technologies used to treat chronic neuropathic pain. Medtronic, a global leader in medical technology, alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life for millions of people around the world. Visit tamethepain.com to learn about treatment options for chronic pain. Purdue Pharma, making a positive impact on healthcare and on lives. Reminding everyone to safeguard medications in their home. For cutting-edge treatments and resources, follow Dr. Paul Christo on Twitter or like Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo on Facebook. Maya Solovitz is a journalist and Soros Justice Fellow this year. She's the author of the upcoming book called Unbroken Brain, a revolutionary new way of understanding addiction. Maya, welcome to Aches and Gains. Thank you so much. You wrote a compelling article about how the war on drugs, and specifically opioids, is hurting chronic pain patients. How is it hurting them? Well, it's basically stigmatizing them and claiming that the uh, heroin epidemic was caused by overprescribing for chronic pain, Mm -hmm. and that pain medication is a gateway to heroin addiction. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's accurate. Oh, and by the way, tell us about your upcoming book that's on addiction. It's called Unbroken Brain, um, and it's about addiction as a developmental disorder. Mm -hmm. And it uses my own experience of having been a heroin addict uh, to look at the crucial role of learning and development in how people become addicted. I look forward to reading it. Now, Maya... The government's war on drugs, and opioids specifically, began around the time when the CDC announced in 2010 uh, that there were over 16,000 deaths involving opioids. I mean, that's a real concern. There's no question about it. What's been lost by the government and the media is that maybe just 30% of those deaths involved opioids alone. 
what I don't understand is why the CDC does not clarify the fact that the vast majority of people who become addicted to painkillers are not pain patients. Mm -hmm. About 80% of people who misuse pain medication never got that prescription from a doctor. Exactly. And I also want to mention that among those 16,000 deaths, the combination of alcohol as well as a group of medicines called benzodiazepines, those are drugs like Valium, were also involved in those overdose deaths. So we can't blame opioids for all of those deaths. We have all this mythology about, you know, 40-year-old granny gets, you know, hooked by her doctor and now she's robbing pharmacies. You know, we have this idea that, like, we're turning pain patients into addicted people. Mm -hmm. That is a very rare thing. If you do not have a prior history of serious drug misuse in your teens and 20s and you get prescribed pain medication in your 40s, your odds of becoming addicted are less than 1%, Mm -hmm. while pharma is far from blameless in this situation. The way it happens is not usually that. The way it happens is the way that virtually all other addictions start, which is that teenagers who are um, either have a history of trauma or a genetic background that will produce uh, mental illness um, get involved with drugs to self-medicate themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another pathway to addiction where some people are looking for intense sensations. Again, this all starts in adolescence, and if you haven't become addicted by 25, your odds of becoming addicted to anything are really, really low. Yeah, great points. I also want to mention that, you know, tobacco and alcohol, which are both legal drugs, do much more damage to society globally than illegal drugs do. For example, in the United States, almost 450,000 Americans die from cigarette smoking every year and more than 80,000 die from excessive alcohol use. Most patients who are abusing opioids, by the way, are not getting that prescription directly from their physician. A lot of the prescriptions that are all over the place are there because somebody had surgery five years ago and got, you know, 90 Oxycontins, and now their kid's getting into them. Mm -hmm. The reason they kept those medications is because they're afraid they will not get them when they need them. Mm So the sort of secret stash that everybody has of opiates is, is a problem, but it's a problem that's actually worsened by our crackdown. Yes, that is a problem. In terms of opioid overdose deaths, the Toxicology Investigators Consortium found that non-opioid pain relievers are more likely than opioids to be linked to drug poisoning overdoses, as a matter of fact. The most common would be the sedative hypnotic agents and sleeping pills, the non-opioid analgesics, and then opioids and other drugs like antidepressants and stimulants. If we're talking about the overdose problem, the majority of them are people who are shooting their drugs, which they're not supposed to be doing, Mm -hmm. who are drinking with them, who are taking benzodiazepines on top, and who have prescriptions from multiple doctors. This is not your average chronic pain patient. You're absolutely right. This is not the average chronic pain patient. I think you agree then that the collective thinking about the war on drugs and opioid overdoses is pretty skewed. Yes. I mean, I think that what we do as a country is swing from one demon drug to another. Mm -hmm. We seem to have this idea that these substances um, contain this evil. Right. When, in fact, it's the same population of people that is getting into trouble um, at any given time. If you 
have OCD and you wash your hands a lot. Let's say you ban every single kind of soap. Mm -hmm. This is not going to solve the problem. Now, some soaps may be more harmful to your skin than others, Mm -hmm. but it's a different question. And I think, you know, we just focus so relentlessly on substances and we don't look at why are people in so much emotional pain that they want to be numb. That is the precise question that we need to address. I wonder whether the war on drugs has been a failure. Because the purpose of the war on drugs dates back to President Nixon, and he unleashed law enforcement action against drug traffickers and producers and and those using illegal drugs. In fact, though, the number of illegal drug markets across the world has grown significantly during this time. Nixon's war on drugs was also part of a Republican strategy that was sort of code word for a lot of racism, basically. Mm -hmm. So the idea was to get the Southern voters who were not happy with the Democrats because of the civil rights legislation. So they used drugs and urban and crime as code words for we're going to crack down on black people, which indeed they did. Um, This point comes from Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, and I think it's a really important one. Most of our drug laws have long been based on using drugs as a way to lock up black people, basically. And it really didn't have much to do with helping people with drug problems. And indeed, I think the war on drugs, or specifically the war on opioids, is not helping those who need them most who have chronic pain. So what do you think the vilification of opioids is doing to patients who have chronic pain? I think basically addicts and fat people are the last people that it is legitimate to stigmatize and make fun of. Mm -hmm. If I were to write a story about schizophrenia, I would not say schizophrenics do X and schizophrenics do Y. I would say people with schizophrenia because the lobby for mental illness has shown us that we should be using people first language. We should be recognizing that people with conditions are people. In the story about addicts, you'll see addict, addict, junkie, scum. Um, You know, it's kind of like as if we use the N-word in covering black people. So Mm -hmm. the pain patients get stigmatized as being addicted and then treated like the scum that people perceive people with addiction to be. That's right. I also strongly believe that similar to mental health groups like schizophrenia, the community of patients who have pain need to have a strong activism group. They need to have strong and effective lobby groups. You know, and it's certainly leading doctors and even pain specialists today to reconsider prescribing opioids because we're afraid that regulators will audit office records. And then in order to protect ourselves, uh, doctors need to hire an attorney, for example. Uh, There's fear of regulatory scrutiny and disciplinary action. And there's the fear of DEA investigations and sanctions and, and possible criminal offenses related to prescribing opioids. Well, and I think there's also this really annoying thing going around, which is that there's no evidence that opioids work for chronic pain. There's no evidence that antidepressants work for chronic depression. There's no long-term evidence on anything. Like, that's a dumb argument, but they make it as though there is long-term evidence on everything else except for opioids, and that therefore we cannot believe the anecdotes of the chronic pain patients who say they're being helped. Right. 
it really infuriates me. And there's even a Cochrane review for opioids for non-cancer pain, which says, yes, they actually do work. The evidence is slightly crappy, but so is the evidence for just about everything else. You really can't blame doctors for being very, very, very cautious about prescribing. Mm -hmm. You know, all the activism that went into getting opioids allowed for chronic pain in the first place, which was not, I might add, entirely coming from the drug companies. It was also coming from a lot of pain patients and a lot of pain physicians who were not saying it because they were paid to say it, but were saying it because they believed it. Right. We are now being misled into believing that they are more addictive than they actually are by biased people and by misunderstanding of research results. Well, and the misunderstanding is really unfortunately leading to more and more suffering on the part of patients who have pain. What a compelling discussion, Maya. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Please join us for part two of the show when we continue our enlightening discussions with both Angelica and Maya Solovitz. I'm Dr. Paul Christo, and you're listening to Aches and Gains. The views and opinions expressed in this radio program are solely the views of Dr. Paul Christo and do not necessarily express the views of this radio station and Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, nor an endorsement by any or all of them of any of its content. This show provides medical information, not advice. Please consult your personal physician before engaging in any course of treatment or use of any of the techniques or products discussed on this show. Discussion of particular uses of products on this show have not been approved by any of the manufacturers of such products. To access podcasts of the show, please go to paulchristomd.com. That's paulchristomd.com. Aches and Gains is produced by Tom Blair and Ty Ford. Elsa Langford is the technical consultant and engineer. Dr. Paul Christo is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Aches and Gains with Dr. Paul Christo.